BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Louis Theroux. And welcome to my podcast series for BBC Radio 4, Grounded with Louis Theroux. I can hear you well. Where I get to talk to people I've always been interested in meeting, but have never had the chance to. Frozen again. Turn your video off and let's see if that's better. Only now we meet remotely using erratic video conferencing software. I can see your name in writing. I can't see your actual (laughs) physical manifestation. There you are. And we have to rely on our guests to record their half of the conversation with varying degrees of success. I'm stealing, there's an empty house across from me and I'm stealing Wi-Fi from it. Today my guest is someone I've long been fascinated by. Not just an actor and filmmaker who became a darling of indie cinema and more recently a musician, but also a fearless activist who played a crucial role in shining light on abuse in Hollywood and bringing Harvey Weinstein to justice. She is Rose McGowan. Hers is a remarkable, sometimes shocking story, which she tells in an uncompromising way. Hi Rose, how are you? Hello Louis, how are you? you? Yeah, I'm good. Are you doing okay health-wise? Health-wise, I'm fine. Are you on your own? Well, I just rented the house next door to where my friends are staying right now, quarantining with them, and then I'm getting my own place because I'm a solo person. And I have a puppy. Like about three months ago, I went to a trauma therapist and she prescribed a dog with no trauma. And I was kind of like, okay, I'll get a puppy because I love them and it's a good excuse. I've been directed to, but I didn't really think it would actually work. And I have to say my PTSD, my post-traumatic stress nightmares that I had for 22 years, and even before that growing up, I always had very bad nightmares, have gone down by about 85% since getting this dog. How about that? Dogs are miracle workers. And I'm not even speaking as a dog person and I'm not trying to pander to the dog lover in you. The fact on its own that dogs can predict earthquakes and diagnose cancer. This is not me like saying, and by the way, Uri Geller can bend spoons with his mind. I'm a total sceptic on matters of the paranormal, but it's a documented phenomenon. They can smell cancer. And when I lived in San Jose, I remember doing a story about a guy who used to write a newsletter called Syzygy. I did a faintly tongue-in-cheek account of how he alleged that he could predict when earthquakes are coming by counting up the missing pets ads in the backs of newspapers. And and when when there was a spike in the number of missing pets, he said, there's an earthquake coming. And I was like, look out, everyone, earthquake coming. Apparently three Labradors, a poodle and a cockapoo or whatever have gone missing. Well, guess what? There was an earthquake like a couple of days later. So that tells you something amazing, don't you think? And more useful than bending spoons. Way more useful. I mean, unbending spoons would be more useful than bending spoons. I find that to be true, too. You know, I saw Uri Geller once at his house. He's bent spoons for me a couple of times, but it always happened at a moment when I was conveniently looking away. And then he kind of waggles it and says, Look, Louis, Louis, it's still bending. It's still bending. Look. It does look like it's bending. Strange profession, but, you know, we've all got them. His genius, I know we're going off on a tangent, His genius is basing a career on the fiction that he can bend tableware. That's a kind of art in itself. You know, anyone can bend a spoon with his hand and say, I did it with my mind, but not anyone can actually make a very good living out of that over several decades. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. So am I right in thinking you're in Mexico? 
I am. I am between a jungle and a beach. A lot of people are like, you're so lucky, and I am. But it's also strategic because I was giving a speech in Norway, and at that point, I think only northern Italy was kind of locked down. And I knew it was going to get really bad. And I only had a little more time on my lease in New York, and I do not want to be under Donald Trump during this moment. And if I'm not going to get healthcare in New York, because I think the healthcare system's kind of being shown for what it is, I'd rather just go to Mexico and take my chances with a third less rent. Makes sense. You know, Wikipedia thinks you live in London. I don't know if you knew that. In Mayfair. I give up on Wikipedia. I've never lived in Mayfair. I wouldn't live in Mayfair. But you have lived in London. That was news to me that you've even lived in London. How did that happen? I sold my house in LA in 2018 because it was just dangerous to live anywhere for me at that point. Dangerous why? Because, you know, as it turned out, I had a former spy from the Mossad tracking me. They were flying drones behind my windows in my house at all hours. This is Black Cube, the intelligence agency that was hired by Harvey Weinstein in order to gather intelligence, find out what you were planning, what you were doing, basically keeping tabs on you at all times. I don't know if it was just tabs. I think it was a lot more devious than tracking. There was a million-dollar bounty on my book, Brave, that I was writing at this time. Ultimately, he succeeded before the book was published in scaling 125 pages of the manuscript. So my rapist mind was in my head before anybody else, which is a very weird and altogether unpleasant feeling. So to write my book under this extreme duress, because just a lot of weird things were happening, just so many weird things. You kind of feel like shadow people are following you ever, but you don't know who they are. And of course, it turned out to be one that became a friend of mine. And at one point, they had me on record, a recording, because she was secretly recording me saying, I think you're the only person in the world I can trust. You said that to the spy, the PI, basically. Yeah. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is. You know, it really is. And the level of conspiracy involved in this, it's kind of mind-boggling. Let's pause. We're getting in very deep quite quickly. And it's all fascinating and at the same time, obviously, uh, upsetting. And but We don't even have to talk about that if we don't want to. We can talk about whatever we want to talk about. Just to wrap two things up that were brought up. One was the woman who posed as your friend while secretly filing reports on you. Have you ever seen her since it was uncovered who she really was? Yes. I saw her in the Daily Mail, of course. And then I also saw her actual credential photo. And it was dead eyes. A hundred percent different than the woman I'd been dealing with. It was chilling. And just to wrap it up. So you moved to London because LA wasn't safe. Correct. I didn't feel safe in America at all. But London, for me, was really instrumental in healing. I was exhausted when the news articles, you know, revealing the rapes broke. I was number one on his hit list. And it was just exhausting. So when the New York Times article broke, I needed a, like a year-long nap at that point. But it couldn't happen. I knew I had to hit the ground running and push this forward. The New York Times article by Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, and then Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker. Those three were, I guess, at the beginning. Well, and Rich McHugh. He did, with Ronan, about 90%, if not more, of the reporting for NBC. Right, who's referenced in Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill. There's so much to talk about, Rose, and it's very exciting for me to talk to you. Before any of this happened, you know, in the 90s, 
You were the Scream Queen. You were an indie darling. I'd love to touch on that. Also, I know you're in a relationship with Marilyn Manson. We could talk on, on that. Also, you grew up in a cult. And as you may or may not know, I'm interested in cults. And that's leaving to one side what we can say about Me Too and this seismic cultural moment that you helped to initiate back in 2017 and whose aftershocks are continuing to reverberate. Wow, I'm really stretching that earthquake metaphor. I'm going to retire it now. Should we talk? Okay, here's a fun fact. The Children of God, which was the cult that your parents were in, that you were born into. It's a big cult, isn't it? It's Christian in its stylings, purports to be preaching the word of a Christian God. The Bible is their holy book. When I met them in the 90s, it was a group in Dallas, Texas, and they were calling themselves the family. They'd rebranded. I never understood that. That's not a creepy name at all, right? Right. I guess they liked the association with Charles Manson, and they wouldn't be the first people to trade on the dark glamour of the Manson family for cachet. But in your book, which I've read, you don't talk about how your parents came to join the Children of God, as it then was. Do you know that story? Because they were in Southern California, weren't they? I mean, I don't mean your parents, but that's where that was the headquarters of the group. Well, what happened was my father was dishonorably discharged from the Navy for putting acid in his commander's cups. He was in the very last couple of weeks of the draft. And he also said to them, I will not kill another race for this country. Right, because this would be the draft for the Vietnam War in the early 70s, late 60s. Early 70s. So then he went to Venice, California, and met a man named David Berg, who is the founder of the Children of God. And then obviously went to Texas with him. My older brother was born there. And then from there... It was, at that point, I think it was called... Oh, what was it called? It was something else. Teens for Christ or something like that. And he was recruiting kind of dropouts and kids, lost teenagers. He was quite a bit older. He would have been around 50 then, David Berg. Yeah. Something about his message clicked with these lost youngsters, right? I don't even know if you say lost. Imagine what the world would have been like. People always say like people going into cults are lost, but I think people living in Ohio might also be lost. Yeah, that's a fair point. I take that point. No, maybe they were seeking. There's, I think might be fundamental difference. They liked the idea of creating this world that, of course, got subverted towards you know the end when we were in it, and maybe still. So he started sending out people just kind of all over the world. Like, you start a chapter here, you start a chapter there. So my father and mother first went actually to a place called Hollingbourne Manor, which is somewhere in the English countryside, and restored that and lived there with a few people. And then from there went to Italy, and they met a duke, and we wound up living on ducal estates. And your father was the head of the Italian chapter, I guess. Is that right? I guess, yeah. Most cults or extreme religious groups, there's something in there that means that they have an appeal for people, right? Whether it's a sort of psychological mechanism that means that it's in some way seductive or intoxicating. With the family, I don't have a clear sense, or with the children of God, other than they had some hippie trappings, right? A lot of it was have fun, play music, hang out, don't be uptight. But at the same time, you're controlled. Is that more or less what it was? I would say that sounds about right. We called everybody. The word for people that were not in Children of God or the family was systemites. Because they believed in the system. They're not wrong. That's the whole thing. You know, just because it's a cult doesn't mean it has some good attributes. Like most journalists that have written about me, especially American journalists, they really feel sorry for me. They're like, oh, poor thing. She didn't grow up in America. And I'm like, 
woo, I'm like, given the choice, I'll take what I had. And actually, I'm a big believer in seeing good and bad intermingled. I mean, I don't tend to use the word cult that much. It's such a blunt instrument because it's almost like a thought-stopping word. Once you've defined something as cult, well, how are you ever going to see anything positive or good in it? It's a kind of tabloid word that stops you from teasing out anything interesting. I totally know what you mean because it's like a cult. Yeah. Because, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, that was a huge thing in the news, like all these cults that they were uncovering that were anti-American or anti-war, you know, anti-the system. What made it a cult? What were its cult-like characteristics? Various things that made no sense to me at all, like sit on your bed and learn how to snap your fingers all day so God will teach you to drive and you're 16. I'm like... That was something you had to do? For like eight hours, I had to snap my stupid fingers. And I was like, this is absurd. The kids were largely raised communally. All the women were called nannies. So if I say I grew up with a nanny, it sounds posh, but it was just communal raising. The education, interestingly enough, was... I was reading at two and a half, like full books. It was a kind of original Maria Montessori teachings that they employed there for that. So my education, granted it had some holes, no one taught me to tie my shoes till I was nine. When I got sent to America, I realized how good the education was and had been that I had already received. Mm. So there are benefits. Oh, sure. You know, you and I have something in common in as much as we have both done musical performances on behalf of Children of God, a.k.a. the family, on street corners as part of their outreach. I did it in an area of Dallas called Deep Ellum. I played some guitar and we were kind of sharing the good news with nightclubbers who were most of them inebriated and shouting and deeply uninterested, except for the fact that a couple of the people in our group were teenage women who were quite attractive. And so that was really the selling point. That was the lure. There you go. Which, as you know, the family had previous in. That was more or less their main recruitment technique. But you did it in Rome, I think. I did it in Rome. And they called the pretty young women recruiting, they called it flirty fishing. Hookers for Jesus. Which is not in the Bible, I don't think. Unless it's in a book I haven't read. I blocked all biblical things out of my mind, like on Jeopardy or in quizzes. No Bible answers come to me. I have zero religious, um, except for I had a weird programming thing that took me years to find out because I thought I'd escaped all programming. But there was one thing they did that really did stick with me. And I didn't realize it until one day I was at Auschwitz of all places. And I was on my way out. And after being rocked by this incredibly intense experience, I came out and I got some news and I had this immediate thought, oh, God must want this to happen. And then I didn't even notice that thought until the next email, it was the opposite news. And I was like, oh, God must not want this to happen. I was like, God, what's God have to do with this? And it was just like this reverse montage one in my head about all the relationships I'd been in, the jobs I'd taken. If something would appear in front of me, I'd be like, oh, this must be what God wants me to do. And I really thought I'd escaped the programming. That one took years to notice. You were very young when you were in Italy, weren't you? You left when you were at what? Six? Ten. Ten. Oh, so you, you do have some recall about it. And do you remember flirty fishing being a thing even then? When you were ten, would you have known that term or did you discover that later? No, I knew it then, but I didn't know flirty fishing. I knew FFing. And it would be like, where's Nanny Joe? FFing. And the idea was literally, correct me if I'm wrong, because when I was with them, they were just 
kind of dancing a little bit suggestively. But as far as I could tell, it wasn't the case that they were actively looking to go off with anyone. But was it your understanding at that time? And was it the case that the women in the family were encouraged to actually have sex in order to recruit? Yes, absolutely. And then David Berg started putting out his directives for children and loving children. This is why my father, why we escaped. Child abuse, basically. Well, strong advocacy for child adult sex. And the creepy, kind of ridiculous cartoon books that they put out, like Boys in Bed with Adult Women, like Little Girls in Bed with Three Adult Men. Do you remember those? Do you remember getting those and and looking at those? I remember the children dancing, and I remember, like, girls not wearing much dancing for the adults. And they explained that as, well, our bodies are beautiful and God wants us to honour him by having pleasure with our bodies. Yeah, essentially. But I think it, it like just loving. And children should be trusted to know that they can have pleasure. It was that kind of early 70s confusion about what it was appropriate for children to be exposed to. Well, I think... Maybe I'm being too generous. I think you are. I think it's it's more sinister. I think, honestly, it's like people that are perverted, like a David Berg, say, they have to up the ante all the time for themselves to get kicks. I have a bad habit of attempting to contextualise and understand how people explain bad actions to themselves and allow themselves thereby to do them. And I don't doubt that Moses David Berg, because he called himself Moses, didn't he? that he was a predator and a narcissist and a deeply dangerous guy. I suppose it's possible that he supposed that he really was working for God and that had experienced a revelation. You know, those two analyses are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's really hard to know because you think of, say, the creator of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, who supposedly made a bet with another B-rate sci-fi writer that he couldn't start a religion. I think there's fundamentally a thing about... I'm going to pick you up on that. What he said was, if you want to make money, allegedly, he said, I should say, that Scientology lawyers are hawk-like. Allegedly, he told one of his science fiction writer friends something along the lines of, if you really want to make money, you know, you don't do it by writing science fiction books you start a religion. Right. And whereas the children of God wasn't making a lot of money because we were just peasants, really, on the street, luckily there was, like I said, there was a duke in the group, so we got to stay in this beautiful palazzo in Tuscany with, like, olive groves and stuff like that. But most of the people had it harder, like the ones that were in the jungle. Like, the Phoenix family was in the Venezuelan jungle. I was going to mention that. That's right, because... You are not the only actor to come out of Children of God. River Phoenix and Joaquin Phoenix were part of it as children as well. River Phoenix died in the early 90s. Joaquin obviously is still around and doing amazing work. But did you ever talk to him about it? I never met River, but I sat next to Joaquin like in the 90s and he just didn't talk much at all. And I just got the sense that was not the thing to bring up. Well, from reading your book, it sounds as though for all the foibles and challenges that your parents presented you with and all that you had to endure, that was something that you did not experience. You were not abused within the church in that way. Luckily, my father drew the line. You know, obviously, flirty fishing wasn't the line for him. It was okay to send women out to do this, but I just never understood the power dynamics between the men and the women and the women subjugating themselves so much. I didn't know that word back then, but I knew that they were less than And I didn't understand fundamentally why, because I would study the men and I couldn't see what was so great about them. 
when you come to America, you're experiencing this entirely other culture, right? Because you were born in Florence, in Italy. In a little town called Certaldo, where the author of Boccaccio lived and wrote. It's about a half an hour outside of Florence. Where Boccaccio came from? Yes, and stayed and wrote, yeah. How about that? Boccaccio, medieval author of the Decameron, a contemporary or maybe slight predecessor of Geoffrey Chaucer. So you arrive in America in what would be like na- around 1980 or a bit later? A bit later, like 82 and a half. So you're arriving in America in this whole other world. Like it couldn't be more different from everything you know. And one of your experiences early on is going into a Denny's, which really struck me because I've lived in America and Denny's does seem to symbolise something or other. Quite what? I haven't put my finger on. What is it about Denny's, the restaurant chain, that seemed so strange and weird to you? Well, first of all, when I grew up you know, in the commune, I wasn't even integrated into Italian society. I was very much kind of behind closed walls. But coming to America, I'd never seen fluorescent lights. I'd never seen, not to be rude, but fat people. I'd never seen plastic menu. I'd never seen bright orange cheese. I say it in my book, Dear America, why is there cheese orange? When I read that, I stumbled on that and I thought, well, there is cheese that's orange that's perfectly nice cheese. Red Leicester is an English cheese that's orange. But I guess the Denny's cheese, it's the vividness of the orange, but also the smoothness. It comes in a plastic wrap. And it's in a plastic wrap and it's perfectly square. Yeah, the picture menu. The menus are shiny and they're shiny because they are wipeable, right? But it's not just that they're shiny. Every item has a photograph. And also all the food comes with bacon on the side. And their signature dish is something called Moons Over My Hammy. Have you ever ordered that? I have not ordered Moons Over My Hammy, but I have gone to International House of Pancakes and ordered the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity. You know, America has a way with words. What can we say? It's poetry. It's kind of vernacular poetry, but it's cheap. You can get a breakfast for one ninety nine that comes with two eggs, two bacon, hash browns, toast for one ninety nine. I don't know if they still do that offer. It's very tempting. It's not a chain for middle class or wealthy people. No. It's low-income earners. You see a lot of people there with their kids because kids eat for even less than that. And, yeah, I saw a picture of spaghetti when I was taken there. And that's when I knew my life as I had known it was over. When I lifted up this congealed blob of spaghetti and it was just a lake of water underneath, I knew it was over. I knew the beauty that I'd experienced, the food I'd experienced. Weirdly enough, the intellectualism that I'd experienced was done. And I just thought... This is going to be hard. I know we've been talking about Denny's a lot. One other thing to say about Denny's is you know their slogan. What is it? Always open. I mean, maybe that's not their slogan. It's just what it says on all the Denny's. At midnight on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or, you know, that any time. Ironically, now with COVID, I suppose Denny's is not open. I don't think it could be. I don't know. It might depend on the state. Like Georgia, for instance. It may be that Denny's has bought itself an amendment to the Constitution that means Denny's is always open, is a legally binding state of affairs. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent again. Just refocus. I know there's so much to cover, but for a while you were homeless. At 13, yeah. That was fun. I did have some fun, though, to tell you the truth. A lot of my book, I did have fun. You sounded sort of like you were having fun. The bit that struck me about it was when you described for a while wanting to see America. And what you would do is go to a police station and start crying and say, 
I need to go home. I live in Pocatello, which was not where you lived. And they'd give you a bus ticket to Pocatello. And then you'd hang out for a little bit and then go to a police station and get a ticket to somewhere else? Yes. And I kind of crisscrossed the country. My friends, And that really happened? Yeah. That's amazing. I was a good actress from a young age, even though I never intended to be an actress and it was an accident. Yeah, what happened is I did a hit of acid at the eighth grade dance, which is a dance with punch, no alcohol, as kids. Eighth grade is about 13 years old. Yeah. I was just shy of 13. And this guy says, do you want to hallucinate? Sure. So he gave me like half of it. And I said, I'm sure that's not enough. I had never taken a drug before. So I took the rest of it. And there was a girl group outside. There was like 30 girls that wanted to beat me up for whatever reason, because I was new at the school and I stole someone's boyfriend, even though I didn't know who the boyfriend was. And I walked to that group of 30 girls that were all there to beat me up. And I guess I was making very strange sounds and walking through like the chosen one with my arms outstretched. And it was like, I remember like parting the Red Sea. And then I got a ride home from a friend, dumped out on my lawn where my mother came to find me. And she was hammering me like, are you drunk? What are you on? It was just aggressive. And I was trying to have a good trip. And so the only two words that I mustered were the F word, F off. I had never said that to my mother. And that was a strategic error. So they basically pretended to drive me to school and instead drove me to a hospital where orderlies pulled me out of the car and locked me up on the top floor of the hospital where I was supposed to stay for a long time. And I just thought, this is hell. So I escaped once, had to go back, escaped the second time and it stuck. And I immediately fell in with two drag queens and a stripper named Tina, all very young. Also, you know, mostly homeless, except for Tina had an apartment now and then. They spare changed quite effectively, but I refused to do that. I would just go hungry because it really reminded me of the children of God busking. And I hated it. I hated it when I was little and I hated it. I would rather starve than ask people for help. But that's how I got my bus ticket. And they would save up stuff where just one of them would go with me and we kind of crisscross. So it was like crisscrossing half the country with drag queens in tow. I would do acid or a line of speed that keeps you from being cold. Right. You don't notice the cold and you don't notice the hunger. And eventually I got exhausted and sick. And I called my aunt in Seattle and she took me in. Your parents were not trying to find you? And in fact, I didn't even think about that until recently. I was like, nobody even went to the cops. You were 13, right? You know, I think my great grandmother during the depression, she was 15 and she ran away and she rode the rails all over the country. And then my mom, when she was 15, she ran away and her mom ran away at 15. So I think maybe my mom just thought it's part of our family history. And believe it or not, we all, except for my grandmother, turned out pretty well. We were like the Adams family on every street we lived on. Adults in Oregon were savage, just savage. If you look different in America to what they want, especially at this point, you know, in the 80s, if you look weird to them, I would have like 30-year-old women with kids, like pulling their kids away from me in the store, being like, freak, you know, like stuff like that. Really aggressive. At the time, I would also live in Oregon. I would get sent overnight to live with my father in Colorado in the mountains. And my father lived in quite a posh community called Evergreen. And it's a lot of kind of well-to-do hippies, as he was at the time. He was a commercial artist. And it was just, you know, the oil industry was on high. Art was being collected. So I would go from my mom, who was putting herself through university after having six kids at the behest of the cult, and working full-time, and we would be on government subsidies for food. But then overnight, I would get sent to my father, who's, and they'd be having four-day feasts in the backyard. 
and much bigger houses, beautiful furnishing. My father had incredible taste and loved architecture and deep. And my mother is probably the most intellectual person I've ever met. Hyper-educated. I don't know what she does. She has double top secret clearance at her work, so I don't know. But it's a government lab. That's all I know. I know your dad's no longer alive, but your mum is alive and well. Mm-hmm. Working in a top secret job, literally? Mm-hmm. Like a spy or something? I don't want to get in trouble. I like it. That's very intriguing. Am I right in thinking, I read somewhere that she was not fully on board with your activism and the Me Too stuff specifically. Is that correct? I think it probably with women in that age group, you know, in their 60s, all these French 60 plus actresses that came for me by signing an open letter against me and the movement. I think if they had to look back at their lives, they would freak out at the amount of crap they endured. We should open that out for the audience that isn't aware. There was a, a community of French actors, actresses, whichever term you prefer. Catherine Deneuve was the big one who said, we don't want men to be inhibited and cringing because they're afraid of being accused of harassment in the workplace. And also they construed the Me Too moment as being perhaps symptomatic of American Puritanism. Would that be, was that your take on it? You know, the Me Too movement got really conflated, I think, with the word movement. First of all, that was a press creation. My thing was not Me Too. I worked for five years. Every three weeks, I would make things go viral, pushing, say, at Variety Magazine, an entertainment Bible in Los Angeles, and just go after them. And I kept doing that for about five years before the articles broke. This is before 2017 and the big change. Yeah. Honestly, it was really weird, but I started looking at how predators groom kids and women and whoever they abuse, and I used their tactics on the media. I started following journalists all over the world, like the number four on the masthead at Hindustan Times in India, say. What I did by doing that was I started disseminating my tweets and my information to them, and they look at who's verified that's following them. And so just stuff I say wound up flooding worldwide news. And I did that on a regular basis because I had to train people in the media to listen to me differently, begrudgingly. But the press, you know, media, corporations, giant conglomerates run by six of them and all men and the women that support that structure uh, were very scared of me because I don't care. Like I've been effed with so much in my life. I'm like, why not do the scary thing if it's for the greater good? And I talk about this in my book. I saw a sticker on the back of a car when I first moved to America, and it said, subvert the dominant paradigm. And I worked it through my mind. I worked it through my mind what that might look like, what that means. And I decided from a very early age to game the system. So like when I did a popular TV show, I joined very strategically. One, because you know it was a job and I couldn't get one in film after being blacklisted by Harvey. But two, because it was already a hit worldwide. And I knew when it came time to strike, the media would be listening because I had a global footprint. Let's pause here and remind ourselves you're listening to Grounded with me, Louis Theroux. My guest is the actor Rose McGowan. And we're about to get into the detail about her dealings with Hollywood and the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein, a subject that she feels passionate about with language to match. But first, I decided to go back to her early film roles in the worldwide hit slasher movie Scream and as the lead in Gregoraki's The Doom Generation. 
it was released in 95, I think, and then 96 was Scream. So if we roll back the clock to the mid-90s when you are a successful, highly visible, highly sought-after young actress, were you enjoying that? Not really. But I always looked at it like a day job. Well, also, God must want me to do this. That factored in heavily. You'd emancipated yourself from your parents as well, hadn't you? Yeah. Basically divorced, I guess, your parents. I needed freedom. I was living on my own at that point, and I couldn't get a bank account. It was it's a very intrepid life. I found myself kind of overnight starring in a movie, and it was a great movie. It's weird, but I think it's a hell of a film. And it was boot camp for acting. And it taught me a lot about, you know, set work and the discipline of being majorly professional. Acting, though, was always very easy for me. I can just leave my body and let something else take over, adjust my voice, adjust my mannerisms, and then go away. I had no acting training. I went to one acting class after I did The Doom Generation, and I was so freaked out by the actors in there. You never took lessons? Just that one class where I watched. No, I never took lessons. I did one play at Hollywood High when I was 15. I went there for a semester, and I did Antigone, and I played Antigone. It was great. It was amazing. It was kind of like, nailed it. Don't need to do that again. I never was like, I'm an actor, but I always loved film. Growing up, my father, we watched a lot of classic cinema, pre-1961 primarily. So I had a lot of film history knowledge, but I didn't have knowledge of who the players were behind the scenes or who the bad guys were, or who to stay away from, or it attracts sociopaths, like nobody's business. It also floods in every year with the most beautiful girls and boys from all over the world. You're like the weak gazelle and the lions come for you. They literally, you can go into a party or a room and they like make a beeline for you. Speaking of someone who never experienced the problem of being too beautiful or too handsome, does that not give you a kind of strength as well though when you're sought after, when you can command people's attention, where the focus is on you? I think if you inherently want to be famous, for them, quite possibly. For me, I always found it deeply embarrassing. I found fame deeply embarrassing. I found being reacted to for something that wasn't me deeply embarrassing. I was mostly embarrassed most of the time. It didn't give me a rush. It was the opposite for me. And I looked at it like, this is my day job. It's just extraordinarily strange. And unfortunately, for the longest part of my career, people don't know you. There was no Instagram. There's no Facebook. There's no Twitter to speak for yourself, even in limited form. So the only thing the public got from you was how you were sold to the public. And I was sold by the studios and producers as a sex symbol. And that even ostracizes you further within kind of the Hollywood community, if you will, because most women think you're trying to steal their husband and most men think they have a right to touch you. And it sets you up for a really crap existence. And so for me, I hid. There's a track on my upcoming album called Lonely House because I related most to that house up on the hill by itself with the one light on, you know, because it was safer for me. When I think back to who I perceived you to be as a star or as an actor at that time, what I got was that you projected a kind of strength and a self-possession and an attitude. And it's in a way, I guess, ironic looking back because you came to be, as we know, victimised, right? But you seemed so self-possessed and so strong that there's a kind of dissonance there when I think about what came to happen. But I'm wondering, do you feel that was who you were? Did you have a kind of take-no-shit attitude? Did you feel in charge of your life to some extent? Did you feel that you had the strength to negotiate your way through what you were experiencing? 
Well, I negotiated my way on the streets when I was homeless. I negotiated my way to not getting attacked there. And I wore that as a badge of honor. I was like, I didn't get raped on the streets like all my friends did. That's a really perverse badge of honor to have. That's sick. But to me, it was logical. Well, this is a great point, though, because you had been, as a young teen, homeless on the streets in a situation in which I'm sure sexual assault of vulnerable young homeless people is absolutely rampant, epidemic, routine almost. And yet here's you able to get through that and then falling afoul of the predators in the far more glitzy and glamorous world of Hollywood. Everybody was nice to me, to my face in Hollywood. So I couldn't tell. And when you're famous, everyone's like like this or they're just fake nice to you. And then later I would have a friend go, oh, that new friend of yours has been really mean to me behind your back. But I didn't know if it was the old friend trying to get rid of the new friend or, in fact, the new friend was really a diabolical person because everybody puts on a face. And in Hollywood, it's almost impossible. So hence the lonely house and just staying by myself because I had no idea who was real. I had no idea who the bad players were. I had no good agent or manager that was like, these are the people to watch out for. Because if anybody had given me the slightest hint and inclination, and I write about the scenario in my book. And, you know, I was attacked basically by the head rapist in charge. How willing are you or how able or even do you want? Is it worth going into what happened? You, you said the rapist there's, in there's chief. There's stuff about Harvey Weinstein that people don't understand. And when people write about hotel rooms, people think of hotel rooms that they've been in. You open the door, there's the bed. This is not those hotel rooms. This is the presidential suite. Mm-hmm. This is the entire top floor of a massive luxury hotel. So they had like three living rooms. It's not the Econo Lodge. It is not, and you don't go to Denny's to eat. I had a 10 a.m. breakfast meeting in the restaurant. I had four movies at Sundance that year, because that's where it happened, and I was like the belle of the Sundance ball. I'd been there for two days. It was 1997. You were 23 years old? Mm-hmm. Just turned, I think. I'd already done Scream, but never met him during that process, and I was in the middle of my second movie for his company. It was in concert. You know, My then-manager got a million-dollar-a-year job with him afterwards for seven years. You know, the major D said, oh, he's still uh, tied up on the phone. His assistants want you to go upstairs and wait for him in the living room. Oh, okay. So I go upstairs. His two assistants are at the door. These two men, and they wouldn't look me in the eye. And I say, good morning. And they look down. And I just think if one of these had said, watch out, none of this would have happened to me. Watch out. You think they knew? I know they knew. His movies were a front for his rape factory, not the other way around. It wasn't like movies with a side order of rape. It was rape with a side order of movies. And the complicity machine behind this. And Hollywood, and I talk about this in my book, it is a cult. It's a deep cult. Don't go outside of here. You have to hire people because public is scary. And the only people you talk to that are safe are others like you. And it operates on a fear-based structure. You can be replaced and thrown out of the Holy Land just by one wrong word. doesn't matter how famous you are. You say one wrong thing, you're done. It is a cult. It is a cult. And he was their de facto leader. And a lot of people hate me there for taking their de facto leader down. They hated him. They loved to hate him. That was their whole relationship. But he was their alpha. Are you okay talking about this? Can I check in with you? Yeah. He had a, a jacuzzi there. He well, obviously... That part I don't really want to get into that okay. much. We all know what happened. I mean, I got dragged into a small room and I froze. I froze like a statue. It happened so quick. But it happened so quick and so slow. Weirdly enough, I was in an Uber about two months after the New York Times stories broke and all that stuff. And I had a fake name on my Uber account and I was right behind the driver. So he didn't see my face. He starts talking about Harvey Weinstein. 
and all these girls who went into the hotel room, what were these dumb bitches thinking? And I go, haven't you ever been so scared that you froze like a statue? And he paused and he said, when I was nine, something bad happened to me. I'm just remembering right now. And I froze like a statue. I couldn't move. And I said, exactly. He goes, because why couldn't they fight? First of all, he's six, four and giant. And when someone's intent on doing you harm, they have a physical strength that you don't. And what I missed saying was that there was a camera crew following me that day. It was MTV, A Day in the Life of Rose McGowan. And I turned to them, and this is what I was mad at myself. I never felt shame for being raped because I knew it wasn't me. I didn't have anything to do with it. I wasn't on a date with this person. I didn't have to unpack that kind of stuff. It was very black and white what happened to me. So I turned to the camera right before I walk into the hotel to go to the restaurant and say, I think my life is finally getting easier because I really thought it was. Easier from? Just my life. Because you're only 23. You're still a young person at this point. I was very young, but I was also weirdly like, I didn't know Hollywood people. And I'd only been doing it for like a year and a half at that point. And I'd been working back to back to back. So I hadn't been going out and meeting Hollywood people at functions. And when I came out of that room to leave the hotel, just in shock, the camera was rolling and asked me how it went. And what did you say? I have no memory of what I said there. I just remember my eyes opening wide and like, your life as you know it has just ended. How does he imagine that he's going to get away with that? It's so bizarre to me. Because he has ultimate power. Because he did. I mean, it took over a hundred white women. What if they had been black? What if they had been Latina? Would this ever come out? You know what I mean? I do. One thing to say at this point is, as you may know, the UK kind of went through a cultural moment that was somewhat similar after it was discovered that the TV presenter and DJ Jimmy Savile had been a serial predator while occupying a prominent place in the public eye for more than four decades, right? And then he dies. And then a year later, it comes out first one or two or three or four trickle that turns into a flood of people who've been victimized by him over the years. But what struck me was that he had an instinct for vulnerability, for seeking out victims who were unlikely to be believed. Very often young teens, either who were in hospitals for the mentally ill or care homes, homes in which the kids were already at odds with the establishment. And I'm not saying that all the victims fall into that category, but he did seem to know who he could prey upon that would be unlikely to have any access to recourse for what he did. I want to say about Harvey Weinstein, on the face of it, he was victimising people with a platform. Not really. Yes and no. He did young, vulnerable actresses that usually hadn't had a hit yet. Or hadn't done anything. But you had several hit movies, right? Scream hadn't come out yet. And he just at that time had total control of this industry. And when I went and complained immediately to my management company, the first thing the head of the manager company said, God damn it, I just had an expose on him killed. He owes it to me not to do this. And then I said, I want to go to the police. I want to go to the police. I want to go to the police. They introduced a woman that came in and she's like, you're an actress. You've done a sex scene. You're done. You cannot file any report. I mean, it's mind-boggling the level of silence and conspiracy and protection because, you know what, it's just an actress. They wore a short skirt. They deserved it. That's it. So I have to confess an interest in the sense that I interviewed Jimmy Savile and did two documentaries about him, and I had heard rumours about him, but not in the industry, more or less as a child growing up. Like, the rumours were so well-established 
that he was dodgy, that there was something sexually untoward about him, that it felt as though everyone had heard something which had the paradoxical effect of making you feel that it couldn't be true because if it was true, surely someone would have done something. And then later on, of course, having made a programme about him and having got to know him a little bit, and then when he's unmasked, it produces a sense of guilt because you feel that you failed to get to the truth, right? Well, you did. I guess I did. Sorry. But yeah, a lot of people fail. And they just kind of push it away and they don't ask the hard questions. If it's about saving lives and people's lives being destroyed, I kind of feel like we don't have time to mess around. Direct is really the best. But let me put this out there, which is that oftentimes those same people who are in certain ways enabling the predatory behavior are also themselves victims. You know, it reminds me of brothels or sweatshops where the enforcers are putting up with a lot of the same things that the people lower down the pecking order are putting up with, you know, and that if you put the blanket descriptor of accomplice, if you spread that too wide, then you catch in it people who, in their own ways, while undoubtedly enabling, were also victimized and who are also carrying guilt and shame to do with. I understand that. And I hate to say that, but they should. Because you know what? People almost died fundamentally people were being stolen. Women were being stolen day after day after day after day. And you know what? I was hurt. I was traumatized. If I was employed at Miramax, if I was employed at the Weinstein Company, would I be a part of this? Would I aid in a bet? I never would have. Ever. Ever. And a lot of people are like, well, not all people are brave like you. Well, that's a fucking bad thing then because people could use a little more bravery in this life. They could use a little bit more care for other humans. They could use a little bit more intellect. They could use a lot more of that. So I don't let them off the hook. Do I feel bad that they have guilt and shame? Were they abused and bullied? Undoubtedly. So, so was I. Did I do the right thing? Absolutely. I don't give people a pass. I can't. It's not how my brain works. I will not hurt other people to the best of my ability. And I will not help other people hurt people for money. So I can pad my bank account and have the glory of saying I worked for Harvey Weinstein. No. I mean, Obama's daughter interned for Harvey Weinstein the summer before the articles broke. Come on. She was safe. She's untouchable. It's disgusting the machine in place. And you're looking at it from the outside, Louis. I was there for 22 years. I knew these people. They would come sit next to me at a dinner party and be like, remember that time you got raped? Literally. Not unlike so many of the journalists leering at me almost every time at the end going with a big smile, you know, Harvey Weinstein says it was consensual. And even now the media, they'll write fallen producer, disgraced producer. I'm like, why don't you try convicted rapist? Because I guarantee if he was a black man, he'd be convicted rapist. I guarantee it. That's why I was shocked that he got convicted. And when he said, the only time I've agreed with that man, Harvey, is that when he was found guilty, he said, I can't believe this happened in America. You and me both, motherfucker. You and me both. On Wikipedia... Before this chat, I wanted to check the timeline, and he's down as film producer and convicted sex offender. 
So but film producers the- first. Because you imagine if people are flooding in, not just actresses and actors, but people that want to be executives, people that want to be directors, people that want to do this, want to do that. And then you get into his sphere and you think, this person can change my life. And that's how he bought journalists off for years. If you wrote an article, he would say, I'm buying your article to turn it into a movie. He would give them a paper that had a list of names that if these people ever come up in press, savage them, destroy them. I couldn't understand it. I would go to an event and the most savage things would be in the press the next day. And I was always like, did I kill someone's grandmother in a past life? Like, what the hell did I do to these people? I could not understand it. And it was basically the same paintbrush that most rapists use. Oh, she's crazy. She's on drugs. She's just an actress. She's a whore. And so that was the playbook they used for the trial. And thank God. We should say they convicted him and he's been given 23 years in prison. That's the New York case. And there's a case in L.A. Yes. That's about that's to start. Stronger, stronger cases. But, you know, it's just time really to start calling it what it is. This is a convicted rapist. We can use the word. This is what this is. Sexual harassment is power abuse. And it happens to everybody. So my whole thing was like, if this is happening to me, it's happening to everybody. Because if they're doing it to somebody that's high up in perception and I'm being disparaged daily this way, what do they do to the woman that's working at, you know, 7-Eleven or Denny's? And my thing was like, it was not me too. I wanted to see if I could get men to see women as human. When it all started to blow up, it was striking reading about how much of it hinged, at least the part of it you contributed to on social media. that You built up a Twitter following and used Twitter to start putting people's names out there or at least behavior or misbehavior, calling it out on your Twitter account. Well, I knew when it was, I was being harassed so much behind the scenes, and this is before the articles came out, and there was a hashtag going around, why women don't report. Well, but before that one, though, there was one or two Adam before Sandler? then. To, yes. He didn't do anything bad. And I took a screenshot of the directive that came with a script, and it was like, wear a push-up bra, tight leggings encouraged. Is that business as usual or even by Hollywood standards, does that qualify as crass and vulgar? It was normal. But the part that I was most insulted by, it was really, make sure you read the script so you understand the context of the scenes. I'm like, it's an Adam Sandler film. I thought you felt it was impugning your professionalism. Like, why should I read the script? It's a stupid Well, uh, I wasn't going to audition. I wasn't acting then anyway. And so the script came to me. I was only doing voiceover at the time. Why had you stopped acting? Well, one, because the blacklisting, it wasn't my choice, but it was also, I didn't like it. It was my day job. Did you ever have a day job? I like to think I have a day job now, but I was a journalist, print journalist. I still am, but I mean, I started out working in magazines and stuff. Well, most people have had day jobs they hate. I guess I've had day jobs I didn't like. And that for me was acting. So then Tarana Burke, who was basically one of the pioneers and it's maybe gets less attention than she deserves... Well, she wrote a blog, I believe, or an article 10 years ago or 11 years ago now about Me Too, like the hashtag, like, did this happen to you, Me Too, or something like that. And then Alyssa Milano... She was your co-star on Charmed, the TV show that you did for many All of a sudden said, like, on Twitter, something like, did this happen to you, Me Too? And it snowballed, and thus the media ran with Me Too movement. So Tarana did give the world a great gift. Tarana Burke gave them a way to communicate in shorthand. But can we get to the, just to be economical, there was a point at which you, there was a hashtag, why women don't report, right? I was being so harassed behind the scenes, I knew it was time to call in the media. Harassed by who? 
Harvey and his minions. So when I, there was a hashtag, it said why women don't report. And so I wrote something to the effect of when your fiance director sells your movie to a rapist to distribute why women don't report. And that's a pretty easy one. Everyone connected the dots. You sent a couple of others as well, though, didn't you? You sent one that said um, when your manager tells you that you won't be believed because you're an actress who's done a sex scene. Wasn't that another one? Exactly. That kind of stuff. So I said everything but the name. Everyone who knew you'd been in a relationship with Robert Rodriguez would have known. Were you not in danger of being sued at that point by him? Isn't that kind of... But it's true. Just to park that, though, for a second, was there a reason why you felt ready to send those tweets then? Yes, I was, like, being hounded. In what way? I told you, I had drones flying through my backyard, skimming my windows. I had people sitting outside in SUVs watching my house. I was being followed. My neighbor, was, who was my friend, was being followed. Why had he escalated? Why was he then beginning to... Because I was dangerous to him. Because I never signed an NDA. There must have been a moment, because he had so many victims... But he seems to have identified you as his main adversary or his highest risk, right? And I'm wondering if there was a moment when that happened and when you began to experience that. When I said I was writing a book. When did you start to write the book? That would be in 2014. And I made my album concurrently, Planet Nine. That was the thing that saved me while writing the book, yeah. And it's beautiful music. I was listening to it. Before we started our conversation, but is that the way, I mean, is that just one of the things, I mean, as you move forward in terms of what you're doing now and in the future, how do you see your work panning out? Where do you see yourself dedicating your energies? You know, I never even saw myself alive at this point in my life. I always had a very clear vision of me up until I took down Harvey Weinstein, but this is the great unknown and that kind of makes it both terrifying and challenging. I'm not trying to become a singer. I'm not going to tour this, performing it. I did it at Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I performed and I was like, I really like this. I enjoyed being with the audience. I enjoyed the experience, but I was like, I don't like being stared at. And I really honestly thought I really took away from how I wanted people to digest and absorb the work, which is definitely without my dumb face there. And was it around the same time you were making your short film, Dawn? That was in 2014, and that was a really incredible experience. I paid for it all myself because there's no way anybody in Hollywood would have helped me. And I essentially, in that short film, it's a metaphor for what happened to me in Hollywood. I was about to say that. It comes across as a metaphor for your experience. It is. And the last line in it, the boy coming out and saying, I just want to see what it was like. Spoiler alert, having just killed, murdered a young woman who trustingly goes with him on an evening's adventure and is horribly killed. It's a beautiful and powerful and upsetting film. And ironically, it was the first time I had to go back to Sundance because it was nominated for Grand Jury Prize. So I went back to Sundance and I was like terrified of seeing him there. I don't even know if he was there the days I was there. I was like hiding behind every corner and every interview I did, it was like, what did you learn from the men you worked with? I'm like, what not to do, what not to do how not to treat people. There was a moment after the the New York Times and the New Yorker began printing stories about Harvey Weinstein and everything that he'd done, America kind of woke up and started paying attention. And then Hollywood kind of picked it up. I mean, Hollywood kind of ingested... uh, I want to put this... I guess co-opted is a way of putting it. There was a Golden Globes event where everyone dressed in black, right, in order to honour... Me too, and and reflect the fact that they weren't going to participate in objectifying women by wearing glitzy gowns, right? Although the black gowns turned out to be fairly 
glitzy anyway. It was completely insipid. I know. We're going to protest women who are silenced by remaining silent. Because that's always been an effective strategy for social change. It was a farce. Were you invited along to that? I mean, what was your relationship with that whole event? None. And what they did was very smart. Each actress in black took an activist as a date, like Tarana Burke. And they got to go through the star-making Hollywood machine and become friends with these and touch feathers, effectively neutralizing them going up against Hollywood. It was a very smart move, quite diabolical. There was a pretty good New York Times article about the whole thing pointing up the queasiness of the whole event and the way in which activists like Toronto Book became accessories on the red carpet. They were paid lip service to, but no one was really interested in what they had to say. And the detail that stuck out, and I've got no issue with Laura Dern. I think she's a terrific actress, but they mentioned how she said, I, now I always know when time's up, hashtag, thanks to my Bulgari watch. Like they did a Bulgari plug the luxury watchmaker, and hitched it to a Time's Up shout-out. It felt great, personally, to be represented that way. I felt awesome. Get it, girls. And then so many men in the audience wearing black ribbons who are part of the problem, if not perpetrators, some of them themselves. Ugh. Okay, just to be devil's advocate, though, could we describe it, though, as a kind of curdled and queasy, but basically sincere attempt to try and reflect something or other about what was going on you know was it better than not doing anything i would prefer they did nothing because that's what they always do they still did nothing they wore black dresses they tweeted about bulgari how much has changed in hollywood because of that come on do you ever worry that you know we talked at the beginning about a little bit about cults and how one of the hallmarks of a cult is black and white thinking right a bunker mentality, a failure to see nuance, to embrace ambivalence and see ambiguity and accept that there are spectrums and grey areas instead of it being good guys and bad guys, right? And do you ever worry that... That I might have cult-like thinking. Maybe. I don't know. I don't relate so much to weakness and fear. The thing about being brave, and that was my father's nickname for me, it was the brave one. The thing about being brave is that you're terrified. Every tweet I sent, I was terrified. Every time I wrote an open letter to the media and released it as a press release so it went global, I was terrified. I had to sell my house to pay lawyers to fight Weinstein. I, I gave everything up. I don't know if it's cult-like thinking or black and white thinking as much as it is that I might just be a hard ass. Because if you valorize strength, if you put so much stock in strength, victims are often shamed, I find, because people say, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you scream? Why didn't you report the next day? Why did you make your rapist breakfast the next morning? Why did you turn up to his movie premiere and go on the red carpet? And actually they fail to see that oftentimes these are coping mechanisms or they're ways in which people are conditioned to behave and it's not through any fault of theirs that they do these things. I don't despise them. That's not who I despise. I despise the machine and the people I knew that helped and that I still see on TV or in the movies or in articles banging the drum for equality and women's rights and all this crap. And I understand nuance very well. These people aren't particularly nuanced people. The thing is, when I grew up when I was homeless, I had no role model. 
I didn't know how to raise myself. So what I did was invent this thing of like, what if I was the best version of me? What was she doing in this situation? Let me imitate that. So it's like, it was behavioral therapy, essentially. What would I do if I wasn't scared? What would I do if I was stronger and braver? Will I give all? And the answer for me personally is yes. I know that's not for most people. I know that. It wasn't all of a sudden I woke up one day. This is a long-term strategy. And I ate a lot of shit, Louie. You don't even know. I shoved it down, shoved it down, shoved it down. Nose to the grindstone. Keep working, keep working. Make sure when it's time, there will be people listening. Can I ask about one of the names you put out there, I think, was your manager who didn't support you. And, and if I ended up taking a job from Weinstein. And then in 2018, she killed herself. And the family, they blamed you and Harvey. I wish to God that hadn't happened. But I was there and I saw what went down. And I was the product of what went down. So it sucks. It really fucking sucks. The damage this man has caused and the damage that people do to themselves when they sell other people out for their personal gain has a lot of deleterious effects in the long run. I feel horribly. I hope she's in a better place. Do I wish this had never happened to me? Absolutely. Did it? Absolutely. It's a tragedy all around. And I feel very sorry for their family. But this was not on me. My fight wasn't with her. My fight was with the machine. I was at a hotel in New York like five months ago and some producer came up to me and he's like, me and all my friends in Hollywood hate you. We can't have fun anymore. I'm like, you got a fucked up idea of fun. And they do. Because it was literally like shooting fish in a barrel for sociopaths. And a code of silence. I'm getting messages from Paul. My, Paul my battery's to... dying. Got 11%. Should I go get a battery? Well, Paul can advise. Technical liaison officer. Hi, Paul. Next time I come back to London, can we have coffee? Please, I would love that. Absolutely. When do you think you'll be around? Don't know, but that's where I'm planning on returning. You've been listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. My guest has been actor, singer, writer and fearless activist Rose McGowan. Next week, it's the turn of rapper, boxer and YouTube sensation Olajide Olatunji, better known as KSI. Remember, there are more conversations in the series. Just search for Grounded with Louis Theroux wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. This has been a Mindhouse production for BBC Radio 4, put together remotely by Paul Kobrak and Catherine Manan. And we didn't even talk about Marilyn Manson, but never mind, we can do that next time. Yeah, we can have like a three-parter. Yeah, there we go. Hi, my name's Jarvis Cocker. And I'm here to tell you about Wireless Nights, a nocturnal investigation into the human condition. A collection of stories about the night and the people who come alive after dark. From nightclubs to night rail, from the man in the moon to the land of the midnight sun. Join me and discover a different kind of nightlife. All episodes now available on the BBC Sounds app.